Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Listen, we are coming back to Charleston, South Carolina in May, which is why we want anyone down there who might want to share a story with us at one of our shows to write to me at kevin at show.com. Also, our very dear friends at firstpersonarts.org in Philly, they want to create their own storytelling podcast, folks. So if you want access to even more stories via that fan-damn-tastic organization, you better get your blue balls over to firstpersonarts.org and give to their Kickstarter campaign. I don't know. I don't know what I meant by that either. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say a word or two about go to meeting because they are uh, sponsoring the show. You know, when your entire team can get together. It's amazing what you can accomplish, right? Projects that could take days or weeks, decisions that could take those things also. The point is you can get a lot done when you're together, but gathering everyone together can be a four-ring circus or a three-one. It can be a circus with anywhere between a few and several rings. That is why we use GoToMeeting with HD Faces. It makes it easy for everyone to get together online, wherever everyone needs to be, no matter how many people. It's HD video conferencing. You do it from your computer, from your smartphone, from your iPad. We use it. We love it. And we're here and we're queer. Technically just one of us for that last (laughs) couple. So... Try go to meeting free for 30 days, my friends. Don't wait. 
for this special offer. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code RISK. Remember, use that code RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Fortet behind me now. We are calling today's episode Parental Advisory. Parents are so often great characters in stories because they've got a ton weighing on them. They're usually a little bit frayed at the edges, a condition that can lead to surprising behavior. In just a bit, we're going to hear from writer Julie Threlkeld performing at a storytelling workshop show. But before that, we're going to hear from comedian Andy Livingood, who we met when we were first in Charleston, South Carolina, a couple months back. I was teaching storytelling down there, like I'll be doing again. Andy told this story in a workshop, and I decided to have him come do it on the podcast. So without further ado, this is Andy Livingood with a story we call The Rift. So I was raised in a very conservative Christian household. We started out as Methodists when I was a real little kid, and then in second grade we went to vacation Bible school and converted to uh, Southern Baptists. And we were there all the time, like three days a week minimum at church. Like uh, you had uh, worship on Wednesday, you had church on Sunday and Sunday night. Uh, Tuesdays were visitation night where you'd go and visit the people that came to church for the first time. Uh, We were there all the time. Um, And I was into it. Uh, I'd read my Bible every day. Um, It was, you know, as Southern Baptist, it was very much like you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, So my parents would talk to me as if, like, he was a person that they knew from down the street. Oh, well, if you prayed about it, well, just give it up to Jesus and he'll take care of you. And Jesus, a little bit more than Jesus loves you. Like, it was like, no, he's a real person. He knows everything about you and he's your best friend. I'd go to church camp like every single summer. Um, And I was the guy that was singing with his eyes shut and his hands lifted up. You know, I was the guy that would witness to his friends. Like, in fact, I got the reputation of like, don't talk to Andy because he'll bring up God very, very quickly. I never had a doubt. 
fact, it was like well into my 20s before I first met anybody that was like, no, I'm not a Christian. And it blew me away. <laughs> I didn't like that never occurred to me that there was ever an option to not be a Christian. The other thing that's really important to know is that um, I am my father's son. My dad and I, uh, more than anybody else in my family, have a weird connection because we are basically the same person. Similar sense of humor, and we like the same things. We like the same type of TV shows and movies and books and things like that. I think that I always look back that like my dad was excited that he had somebody to finally share this stuff with. I remember it was second grade. He's like, you're going to watch the Star Wars trilogy. And we went and rented them, and we we watched all three of them. And I, I, the thing I do remember is I got in trouble. I did something. I don't even remember what it was. But I wasn't allowed to watch Return of the Jedi until the next week, and I was so ticked off. <laughs> I mean, like, it would go to, like, all sorts of nerdy things. Like, oh, you should, like, read Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Which, again, looking back in such a Christian household, seems weird to me that, like, that would be okay. We would go see uh, movies. We'd go see. We'd go to the midnight show for Star Wars. We drew the line at dressing up, but we would go, <laughs> and we would do it all the time. It would always. We'd make uh, an evening out of it. So I was in my uh, mid to late twenties when I started having my first kind of doubts with faith, and it started out simply of just like, well, all right, some of this doesn't make any sense, and uh, we were raised that the Bible was the word of God. It's not, it wasn't allegorical. It was like, if the Bible said Noah had an ark with all the animals on it, Noah did. But as I got older, I started kind of, well, I don't think that's, there's a lot of species out there. I don't think that's possible. <laughs> and, um, you know, that would lead to all these other, like, finding contradictions in the Bible and going like, well, if it's the word of God, he shouldn't have contradictions. He knows what he's talking about. And that sort of started the seed of doubt. And again, the first time in my entire life that like doubt would come up. And it was the book of Job that really was kind of like, well, wait a minute. Because in that story, Job's a righteous man. And the devil goes to God and says, well, look, he's righteous because he's got all this stuff. So God allows Satan to kill his family, take away his possessions, like leave him with nothing. And, you know, in the Bible, the moral story is he still praises God and God rewards him at the end. But for me, the thing that uh, immediately stuck out was like, wait a minute. It wasn't that he just like took his cattle, took it, you know, burnt down his house. Like he allowed Job's family to die. They were the sacrificial bunt to prove a point. Like if a person does that, they are a sociopath. And that was sort of the moment of like really starting to question this thing. And it just everything started adding up. I just stopped believing. And I remember the first time that I said it out loud, that there is no God, I don't believe in God. And there was nobody else around, I was by myself. And I said it, and I was waiting for that moment of just like crushing guilt and shame. And I didn't feel that. I felt relief the first time I could say it out loud. I think one of the things that I really liked the most once I kind of came to grips with my lack of faith was that Life is so beautifully complex and horrific and amazing that and it, that existence is enough. I, I don't like the idea of this being a test for the next thing. I go outside and I see a beautiful sunset. That's awesome. And I don't have to see like, oh yeah, there's a guy that made this and there's all this other stuff and there's going to be paradise beyond this and you're going to spend time with him for, that, for me to appreciate that sunset. And there was really, uh, there was like this wedge kind of growing between me and my parents because 
I was going back and forth on should I tell them or not. Sharing my lack of faith weighed on me more than sharing my faith ever did. But it really started to kind of fracture our relationship. I couldn't talk to them about anything. If I had something really amazing happen in my life, and I told them about it, oh, you know, you should thank God. That's, that's awesome that he, you know, he provided for you, and you know, praise God. It's like, well, you know, I'm the guy that decided to start working out and lose 100 pounds. Like, do I get none of that credit? So I couldn't talk about anything good. And what was even worse is I couldn't go to them for help or advice. Because if I came to them with a problem, anything, their advice was always, did you pray about it? And I'm always kind of like, well, let's assume that I did. But what's the practical advice? And there was no practical advice because it was all just leave it up to God. He's got a plan. He wants the best for you. So just leave it up to him. So now I can't talk to them about good stuff. I can't talk to them about bad stuff. I have nothing to say to them. I live like 10 minutes from my parents, but I felt like I lived across the country. So then one day, uh, my dad and I both noticed about the same time because we called each other and left, you know, we're, oh yeah, you saw it, you saw it too. The uh, local art house was showing Metropolis, which is a really cool, groundbreaking, black and white, silent science fiction movie. Of course, I, I wanted to do like we used to, like I, like I always remember, like let's go do dinner and then go see the movie. So we went to Outback. And my dad and I are eating dinner, and it is small talk. That's all I have to talk about with my dad. It was like we were strangers, because there was nothing deeper to talk about. So the whole time this is going on, I'm having that internal debate again. You should tell him, you know, no, don't tell him, don't tell him. Like, why? Like why? What, what do you have to gain? And I'm going back and forth, and I finally start kind of working up the courage of like, no, I'm, I think I'm going to tell him. So I take a deep breath and I swallow really hard and I tell I say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. And uh, he is just like blindsided. He has no idea what to say. And uh, we sit there in silence for a few seconds. And um, I realize like, I felt great. I really did. I was like, oh, this weight's off my chest. I feel so good. And then I looked at my dad and I could tell that I hurt him so much. And I feel horrible. Not because, not because of the fact that I'm an atheist, but because I told him. This is the moment that I could get disowned. It's, I mean, as, as, as much as they believe and as strongly as they believe, like, this is the moment my dad could, you know, I have no son. Like, you're, that's it. And just write me off. Like, he tells me that uh, he would probably be able to accept this more if I told him that I was agnostic or that maybe I just was, you know, into a different religion. And I, I told him, like, well, I've been thinking about it for a year, and no, I'm not either one of those things. I'm an atheist. And that's when I know I heard him because now he knows that for a year I've been struggling with this and I haven't told him. This was the first time in my entire life that I saw disappointment on his face. And uh, this includes, like, stupid things I did as a teenager when I'd get in trouble. There was always, there was never disappointment. It was always like, I'm upset with you, but I'm not disappointed. And I saw disappointment. So we, uh, we pay for the check, and uh, we go back to the car, and we're driving to the movie theater. It's, it's that, like, deafening, awkward silence... 
or neither one because like we didn't have much to say before and now we really don't have anything to say so i'm i'm scrolling through the radio just trying to find anything that'll just fill the, the fill the sound and i like I, it's on scan and it stops on a religious station and i'm very quickly turning that to the next thing because we don't need that right now so we go and we sit down in the movie and like from the very first frame it is clear this is not the original version of metropolis because um, in the 80s, they uh, re- re-released it. It's colorized. They got, like, Bonnie Tyler and Queen to do the soundtrack. So it's less of this, like, groundbreaking sci-fi classic and more of, like, a rock opera <laughs> that's also colorized. And uh, my dad is a purist when it comes to old movies. I remember as a kid, uh, anytime they'd have, like, the like they're showing It's a Wonderful Life. If it was the colorized version, my dad would call it the communist uh, it's a Wonderful Life. And I lean over to my dad and I go, I think this is the colorized version. <laughs> and I could feel him kind of tense up. He's not digging this. I'm kind of enjoying it because it's kind of fun. My dad is not. And, like, you don't have to, like, really look that hard to see that he's not. Um, so the movie finishes. And we walk out and my dad marches over to where the poster was. Because the poster was for the black and white one. And he's like, this isn't what they advertised. And he's really, like, he's upset. Legitimately so. Like, um, and he's just like, this is loud. Like, I can't believe this. Like, he wants to kind of complain, but my dad's not that type of guy. He's never going to be the guy that's like, I want to see the manager. So we're just going out to the car. And um, before we get to the car, I just start laughing. And I can't stop. I, I, am, I am, like, just uncontrollably giggling and laughing. My dad stops and he goes, what's so funny? And I just look at him and I go, you have had such a shitty night. And I don't, I try not to curse around my parents. I certainly didn't do it when I was a Christian. And even now, I try not to curse around my parents, just as a courtesy, because I know they don't really like that. But I did that night. I just told them, you've had a shitty night. And my dad just kind of stares at me for a second. And he starts laughing. And that's when I kind of knew that we would be okay. stories this evening. Here's another one. So, (laughs) it's good. Just wait. So when I was 14 years old, I came home from school one day where my mother was waiting to ambush me. I found the letter you wrote to your father. My mother and I lived in California. My father was living in New York where he lived since the divorce. And uh, I'd written him a very long, very earnest letter that essentially it, it made an assertion and it asked a question. And the, this is so ABC after school special, but the assertion was, I am gay. And the question was, are you going to be okay with that? <laughs> and 
My dad was okay with it, which was a huge relief to me, um, but not really a surprise because I'd had, I'd, you know, I'd had a feeling that he'd be okay with it. And I'd had the same feeling about my older sister who was already away at college. Uh, she was fine, so dad's sister, fine, leaving my mother as the only member of my immediate family who hadn't found out about this, and that was because I didn't think she'd react well. This letter says that you want to have sex with a woman. <laughs> Let me just make something perfectly clear. I never wrote a letter to my father that said I want to have sex with a woman. <laughs> this, this was obviously a, you know, a subtext that my mother had extracted and, and made concrete, and now she was completely obsessed, and this is the only thing she picked up from the letter. You want, you want, to, have sex with a, you want to have sex with a woman? But why? And this was a trick question, I wasn't expecting it. And I didn't know how to answer it, but when I saw the way she was looking at me and, and heard the way she was speaking to me, it was really the first time it had occurred to me to feel shame about this. And when you, when you talk to your mother about sex when you're 14, I think it's extremely difficult under the best of circumstances. But when you're talking about sex that your mother can't even fathom, uh, it's mortifying for both of you. So neither of us uh, brought it up again in my entire four-year high school career. I graduated from high school, came east, ended up at a uh, tiny liberal arts college in upstate New York. And I like to think of myself as being a fairly resourceful person, but for my entire first year of college, I could not locate any other gay people. <laughs> So, at the end of my freshman year, I thought, I need, I need to do something drastic. So I applied for a summer internship at the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force in Manhattan. <laughs> there were not going to be any half measures for me. This, this problem was so pressing that it required a task force. <laughs> People, I had a banging summer. I met basically, I met every lesbian in New York. I cut all my hair off. I basically looked the same 30 years later. Uh, oh, actually, a uh, thematic tie-in. Uh, that was the summer of 1984, the summer of Wham. Uh, so I, I had everything I wanted. Uh, yeah, and I, oh, so I, yeah, I was, I was doing stuff in the city, and by the end of the summer, I had a, I had a steady girlfriend. And so as the fall semester approached, I just thought, well, fuck this. You know, I don't want to go back to school. I have everything I want here. So I dropped out of college. Uh, I took a full-time job at the task force, and I moved in with my girlfriend. And Susan wants me to tell this joke. I'm about to tell you the greatest lesbian joke ever written. <laughs> Gay people, if you know, the punchline, which I'm sure you will, don't shout it out and ruin it for all the straight people like you're doing with marriage. Okay. <laughs> what does a lesbian bring on the first date? Anyone? Flowers, obviously. What does a lesbian bring on the second date? A U-Haul. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> 
The lesbians are exer experts in um, animal rescue, buying brown furniture, and moving in together immediately. <laughs> so, uh, I, I moved in with my girlfriend after knowing her for about three weeks. Um, <laughs> not recommended, especially if you're 19. Uh, so anyway, so I was, here I was, 19 years old. Um, I was uh, working at this organization, I was basically a teenager working in an office full of ad adult gay activists. And they were all really interesting people, but one of them was fascinating to me. Brad was, uh, was like me, a low-level peon in the organization. But unlike me, Brad was heavily into S&M. And Brad spent his nights in, they're all closed now, but they were all up the road from here. They're, men's clubs, S&M clubs, with names like the Ramrod, and the Mineshaft, and the Manhole. And he would come to my desk the next morning and tell me all the details of what he'd done and seen there the night before, because he knew I loved hearing about it. <laughs> Julie, oh my god, so last night this guy goes out in the middle of the room, and he lies down on a table, and he sticks his ass straight up in the air. And this other guy comes over, and he's got a staple gun. And he starts stapling the guy's ass. Oh my god. That's so amazing, Brad. Yeah, and you know what's even more amazing than that? I don't know, why don't you tell me? Watching another guy come over, and pound the staples in with a ping-pong paddle. So my mother knew that I was, I was doing this internship. But what I didn't know was that she had been busy at work planning a trip to come visit me at college in the fall. And I had to break the news to her that not only had I dropped out of college, I was now working in an office full of the kind of women who wanted to have sex with other women. But she wanted to come visit anyway, so I said okay. And my mother flew out, and uh, the moment that she arrived, it was abundantly clear that virtually everything about my life made my mother intensely uncomfortable. How I looked, which was very different from how she'd remembered, uh, where, I, where I lived, horrible apartment, uh, who I was living with, girlfriend who wasn't very nice to me, and especially where I worked. But, you know, she was a mother, she wanted to sort of check things out, see how I was doing, so she, she wanted to see where I worked. And as reluctant as I was for these two worlds to further collide, I thought, well, you know, it's a peace offering, so I'll, I'll take her up on it. So I said, okay. So the morning that she was set to arrive, we had a staff meeting at the task force, and it was like, it was like, Barbara Bush visits the island of misfit toys. It was like, okay, everybody, my mom's going to be here. She's going to be really uncomfortable. So for the 15 minutes or so that she's here, can we just turn down the gay a little bit? <laughs> so my mother arrived, and I, not 30 seconds after she arrives, I get called off to do some minion duty. And I think, well, okay, I've got to leave her with someone who isn't going to make her completely squirrely. Uh, so I pick... Margot, my boss, who's really not gay-seeming, and she's, she's about my mother's age, and she's, she's very friendly. So leave mom with Margot. I go off and I'm doing something, and about five minutes later, Margot appears at my side, and she's alone, and she's really upset. And I said, Margot, where is my mother right now? 
Julie, never mind that. Margo, where's Brad? Julie, never mind. We have to evacuate the office immediately. We've just had a bomb threat. So I'm not thinking about a bomb right now. The biggest threat to me, the most explosive image I'm thinking of is my mother in a quiet corner with Brad regaling her with the details of last night's basement Crisco fisting. So I locate my mother. She's not with Brad. We evacuate the office. And I said to my mother, why don't we go to lunch? So we're sitting at lunch, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, now my mother not only associates where I work with uh, homosex, but now she associated with, you know, violence and terrorism and maiming. This isn't good. But, but we don't talk about that, because that's how we roll. <laughs> but she has lots of questions for me. Are you learning a lot of new skills there, honey? Do you think you work there a long time? Have you thought of working anywhere else? And underneath these surface questions, there was a deeper one that I had started to ask myself. And that was, what the hell are you doing with your life? So I went back to work that day. There was no bomb. My mother went back to California. And uh, a few months later, I quit that job. I stayed in the city. I re-enrolled in school. And, um, I got a phone call from my mother one day, and it was, sort of, it was a normal phone call. She was very excited about a new friend that she just made. Uh, she just kept talking about this person, kept saying, oh, you know, well, um, Jan and I went to, to an art gallery, and then afterwards, uh, Jan showed me this great restaurant in Tiburon, where I think we should go next time you come out. And then I think next week, and Jan and I are going to a folk festival together. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this just all sort of washed over me. I hung up the phone and didn't give it another thought. And then a couple weeks later, I got a call from my sister. Have you talked to mom lately? <laughs> yeah, why? Well, she's got this new friend, Jan. <laughs> That's all she talks about. I just think it's a little weird. <laughs> so about a month later, I get a call from my mother, and she says, Julie, I have something I have to tell you. <laughs> you know my new friend Jan? I said, yeah. Well, Jan and I are, uh, we're involved. <laughs> I said, hang on. You're having sex with a woman? I, I didn't say that. I really wanted to, but I, I didn't. Instead, I had this rapid-fire series of emotions that I wasn't expecting. The first was anger. It was like, God damn it, where were you 10 years ago when I really needed this? And then that was eclipsed by empathy, because you know I knew how hard this was, and I could hear how, how she was struggling to say this to me. And then that, that gave way to shock. You know, I don't care who you are. If your mother comes out of the closet without warning, you are going to be shocked. <laughs> and then finally, uh, there, I had like this weird territorialism. It's like, no, I'm the, I'm the interesting person in the family. I'm the gay. There's not room for two of us. 
so a couple years later, um, my mother was settled into her new lifestyle with Jam. And I'd broken up with my girlfriend, and I was seeing somebody new, quite seriously. And I mentioned this to my father, and he said, Oh, that's great, honey. What's her name? I said, oh, well, his name's Jonathan. <laughs> so I, I'd, sl I'd slept with a friend, you know, because I like to try new things and uh, enjoyed it. And then I ended up falling for him. And this completely surprised me, but it apparently took people who knew me by a much bigger surprise. And as I was sitting there looking at the expressions on my father's face as he tried to figure this out, I thought, oh, fuck. I have to do this all over again. <laughs> I have to come at us by now. My sister had the best reaction, though. She said, you know what? I am so sick of explaining things to people. <laughs> my mother was straight, and now she's in a gay relationship. My sister was gay, and now she's in a straight relationship. Why can't anyone in this family make up their mind? <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's, uh, uh, Beach House. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's Beach House behind me now. And before that, we had Julie Threlkeld. Now, Julie was telling that story, not at the Risk Live show, but at another wonderful storytelling show in New York City called Ask Me, which is curated by David Crabb and Cami Climaco. Wonderful show and a wonderful podcast. Go to iTunes and look up Ask Me Stories. You can find Julie's blog at modernstories.com. Well, folks, you know, we're always featuring exciting new indie music. We wanted to be the first to debut this extraordinary new track by what I think is just the hottest new act in all the land. This is the new single, The Quick Way, by The Postman. Oh, a trip. 
to the post office is hardly ever quick. Driving there, finding parking, it's a hassle. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the quick and easy way to get postage on demand. Buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or packet. Using your own computer and printer plus a digital scanner. Oh, you'll never waste time at the post office again. I use stamps.com and I'm obviously cool. Use the promo code RISK for a no-risk trial. It's $110 bonus offer. That's the digital scale and $55 free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. <laughs> wow, such a hot track. I'm going to be playing that over and over on my iPod this summer. But I, I totally agree with the sentiment. Stamps.com is the easy way to get your postage using your own computer and printer. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter Risk. In just a bit, we're going to hear from comedian John Gabris at the Risk Show in Los Angeles. But before that, the oh-so-wonderful in oh-so-many-ways Gene LeBeck, another recent Story Studio workshopper with a story we call America for Us. My sister, brother, and I would wait on the stoop of our apartment building for my dad to come home from work. My dad was about five foot eight. He had uh, black curly hair, a big, beautiful, infectious smile, twinkly blue eyes, and he would kind of look and search for us as he was walking up the block. Mary, Johnny, and I would go charging down, be scooped up into his arms, Johnny on one hip, me on the other hip, my sister on his shoulders, searching for raspberry chocolate candies which he always hid, wanting us to find them. My mother was about five foot eight. She had brown hair, she had big bosoms, long legs, and was always, always on a diet. And every evening they would have a half an avocado with Italian dressing in the middle and gin and tonics. And that was their hour. We were left on our own outside. We could fight, we could scream, we could do anything we wanted, but we were never able to interrupt them. My father hated Frank Sinatra, and my mother loved Frank Sinatra. And in those years, this was their major argument. It was 1953.
we were the only Jewish family living in a white, Irish, hardworking Catholic neighborhood. And I never really knew the difference. Uh, I had a best friend, Kathleen Halligan, and she went to St. Teresa's. She was in kindergarten. I went to PS9, a public school, and I was also in kindergarten. We always used to play together until one day. She came running home from school, straight to me, crying. She said, you killed Jesus Christ. You did. You killed Jesus Christ. I was horrified. I didn't even know the man. I was crying. I didn't kill Jesus Christ. I didn't kill Jesus Christ. I went running inside to my mother, and I said, Mom, Kathleen said I killed Jesus Christ. She looked at me. And she said, you turn around now. You go straight out there. You tell her you didn't kill Mr. Christ. You didn't even know the man. So I went out. I knocked on Kathleen Halligan's door. And Mrs. Halligan answered. And I said, I didn't know Mr. Christ. And I didn't kill him. And that seemed to solve it. (laughs) Every Friday evening... (laughs) Their friends came over, and it was the same group of friends every Friday night. They were so close to my family that we were calling them aunts and uncles. We had Uncle Irving, and we had, um, we had Uncle Joe. Uh, we had Aunt B. We really did have an Aunt B. But, um, and we would have, uh, my mother would work all day making pineapple upside-down cake with maraschino cherries and deviled eggs. And uh, we loved those deviled eggs. And we would wait till they were drinking a lot and uh, dancing around, listening to music, until we would sneak into the kitchen and eat all the maraschino cherries off the cake and grab as many deviled eggs as we could. Saturday mornings, my parents loved going into the city. And when we went into the city, our first stop was always to Aunt Ethel and Uncle Jules. They lived on the Lower East Side and very close to uh, the Henry Street Settlement House. And we would walk over because on Saturday mornings, Aunt Ethel would sing and play the piano. And I just loved when she would put different colored scarves on my wrists and on my ankles. And I would just dance around. I was a butterfly. I was the wind. I was uh, everything. And she just encouraged it. And we, we, those mornings were, were always a lot of fun. In 1953, uh, towards the middle, things began to change. And Friday evenings became hush times. We would listen through a swinging kitchen door, and there were no, there was no more music, and and there was no more uh, dancing. And my mother didn't even make the pineapple upside down cake, and there were no deviled eggs. And it was writing. They would write letters, and they would uh, make phone calls, and there were hushed whispers about uh, Jules, my uncle Jules, the one I used to visit Saturday mornings, and Aunt Ethel, and we weren't visiting them, and. Everything was very secret, and at night, Miss Duffy upstairs would come and watch us while my parents just snuck out doing something. I never knew really what they were doing. 
it was during that time also that we stayed with my Uncle Irving, who uh, never had kids. And we loved the week with Uncle Irving because we ate strawberry shortcake day in and day out. And he would say, your parents are in Washington. Your parents are in Washington. We had no idea why my parents were in Washington. My sister said it was because they were visiting the president, that they were important. And the president wanted to see them. Soon after that Washington trip, it was a Saturday morning, and uh, my father was vacuuming, and my mother was taking a nap, and Mary, Jenny, and I were torturing each other by jumping on the bed. Well, the doorbell rang, and the doorbell kept ringing loud, and Mary looked to see if my father was going to answer it, but she opened it up, and there were two men dressed there, very dressed up. They were holding uh, a briefcase, and they were wearing suits, and they looked at Mary and said, little girl, where are your parents? Is your mom and dad here? And Mary said, dad, and my father came running down the hallway, smacking us with one hand against the side of the hall and trying to push these two men out. And they were saying, we are the FBI, sir. We are the FBI, sir. And he said, you are murderers. Get the hell out of my house. And we were against the wall and they were being pushed out and the door was being closed on them. And he slammed the door and he turned to us and said, you are never ever to open the door to answer questions for the FBI. And he didn't look like my dad. And I think about it now. And in that moment, in that moment, I knew for the first time that we were different, that we weren't on the right side. We weren't on the side of the FBI. We were on the other side. What was the other side? In 1953, Jules and Ethel Rosenberg were executed as Russian spies. They were the only American citizens to be arrested and executed uh, in the United States. Years later, uh, my brother, sister, and I have tried to make sense out of a puzzle that we lived with. Outside, I always thought we were a normal family, but we weren't. And I had to make peace with, are we bad? My sister, oh, being older, uh, began to really put the pieces together before uh, I did and before my brother did. And in our conversations, I began to learn that for my parents, being members of the Communist Party was about working class people, about putting unions in place and the rights of people in place, about gay rights, about uh, black rights, about being able to be an interracial couple, about being able to say what you want, about not having your books burnt because they expressed other ideologies. It was about America that they believed in and not one that they were living in. For my father, it was a difficult time the years following the execution of the Rosenbergs because he began to understand that Stalin was doing horrible atrocities and 
it really, he couldn't come to grips with it, and he, in finding that out, left the party immediately. And my mother couldn't face it. It was really difficult for her to give up the ideology of this utopian world, and it caused tremendous grief between them. So my family, after the Rosenbergs, was one where we lived in confusion, and we lived in a up-and-down sense of what life was all about. Many years later, my sister called me up and she said, hey, Jean, guess what we're called? I said, what? And she said, we're called Red Diaper Babies. I just met a whole bunch of us. I said, you did? She said, yeah. She said, there are so many, so many, so many families. Remember all those picnics we went on? They went on them too. Remember World Fellowship? They were there too. And as we were having this conversation, I think it was the first time my sister and I were able to even laugh at the whole notion of what our childhood was. And I think about my parents, how young they were. I think about that they were in their 30s, that they were struggling and fighting for what they thought was fair and right and just and ideal. And it wasn't that they wanted to have us become Russia. It was that they wanted the ideals of America to truly be in place and to be in place for us, us. And I fell in love with them. Uh, I think I had lost my footing with them in that moment when he slammed the door. Uh, But I understand them now. And I can see that they just wanted to embrace what all of us here today want to embrace, the ideals of being an American citizen. pretty much a chick magnet and uh, you're not supposed to laugh at that you're just supposed to agree and when I was 16 I was dating a 17 year old that's how you know I am a baller Uh, and uh, she was a year older than me and she had a tongue ring that's the kind of girls I hung out with her name was I'll just say her real name even though this is recorded for her name was Chantel I had a history she was white I don't know why I feel the need to qualify that but uh, (laughs) I have a history of dating Oh, white girls with black chick names. Like I, uh, my three main girl, my three main girlfriends. I say as if I had other girlfriends. My three girlfriends, uh, thirty-one. The three girlfriends I've ever had were uh, Chantel, JoJo, and my now wife Tiffany. All very black names or stripper names. Uh, you know, white strippers or you know, just black girls. Uh, I'm edgy like that, but not edgy enough to actually bring home a black chick. Uh, 
Just kidding. I my first girlfriend, the girl that I ripped her bra trying to take it off was Danielle Schultz. She was half black, so I'm pretty diverse. Uh, so Chantel was having a sleepover party on New Year's Eve. And that's sort of a big deal if you're 16. I don't know. My parents never let me do anything. Like, I wasn't allowed to join a gym. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm now allowed to. I just ha don't. Uh, but uh, I wasn't allowed to join a gym because my mom was worried I would start doing steroids. What kind of mother's like, uh, I'm like, Mom, I want to join a gym. She's like, just stay home and eat chicken parm, please. Uh, so she, it's her fault. Everything's her fault. Uh, so she said, I can't sleep out. No co-ed sleepovers in high school. What are you, crazy? And I was like, Mom, come on, I'm a grown-up. I'm 16 years old. I'm a big man. You know, let me, like, I have an older girlfriend. Her parents are out of town. Uh, let, me, let me stay there. She's like, you know what? The best I could do is you can stay there until 11.30, an extra half hour past my curfew. 11.30 on New Year's <laughs> Eve. It's like... <laughs> Like, oh, I'll give you a blowjob, but you're, no, do not ever finish. It's like, what? Uh, you know, like, who goes to a New Year's Eve party? He's like, gotta head out before the ball thing happens. Can go home and kiss my dog before I go to bed. Uh, so I got to go. To, my mom said, you can't go, but you can, uh, I'll let you stay. I was like, fought and fought. I was like, Joanne, please, Joanne, please. And she's like, super strict. And my dad was super strict. My mom was just like this coddling, smothering. She looks exactly like me, but she's like five foot one. And I mean exactly, like same exact like shoulder width. Like, uh, like I'm a rectangle and she's a square. Like that's exactly what we are. Um, and uh, I, I love you, mom. Uh, and uh, my dad was super strict, like Nazi, six foot five, blonde hair, blue eyes. He got the looks in the he got the looks in the family. No, he brought the looks into the family and skipped me with them. Uh, so I, uh, she goes, you can go, but you have to take your little brother who's 14 years old. And I'm like, all right, I don't want to hang on my little brother, but I'm okay. I'm excited to make him look cool, like to show him how cool I was. And and my mom was like, and you can have your best friend uh, come with you, go with you to the party, and he could sleep over. You're allowed to have a sleepover. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm 16 years old. My mom's like, you're allowed to have a boy sleepover if you want. And I'm like, all right, that's a fair trade. Uh, <laughs> such a fucking loser in hindsight. I'm realizing that now. I'm like, why didn't I just be like, fuck you, mom, I'm out of here. Because I was afraid of everyone. Uh, <laughs> my best friend was named Sanford, but we called him Welfare because his parents were on welfare. It's like the worst nickname. <laughs> Like, we would go over his house and, like, see welfare checks, and we'd be like, hey, your parents are fucking poor. Your dad works in a bowling alley. And he's, like, crying. And we're like, but we were best friends. <laughs> oh, we still, we still are best friends. We, you know, he was in my wedding party. We're, we're tight. And uh, <laughs> despite me calling him welfare for, like... And his name was Sanford, a black person's name for a white friend. Look at me. I'm fucking... It's a theme, I guess. Uh, and uh, so... I uh, go to the sleep, and we want to be men. We want to be like we want to be older dudes. We're hanging out with older girls. My little brother's there. We want to show him we're cool. So we're not gonna just drink natty ice tall boys like we've been drinking since we were twelve. You know, we we're, we're older. We're grown up now. So we're gonna make some cocktails. And this is what a sixteen-year-old who thinks they're a grown-up makes as a cocktail: uh, vodka, root beer, vanilla ice cream, blender. Uh, <laughs> which we were calling alcoholic root beer floats. We couldn't even think of a witty name. We just put a terrible disease in the title of it. We're like, alcoholic root beer floats. Who wants one? And everyone's like, none of us. We're 17-year-old girls. We don't even like beer yet. And I'm like, motherfucker. So we're just, uh, 
And you do that thing where we like made three pictures of it before we asked anyone if they wanted any. And we're just like walking around the party like, yeah, alcoholic root beer float. And they're like, great name, but I think I'm gonna pass. And I'm like, so we have to like pretend like it's good now. And we're like just drinking it like, oh yeah, no one else. All right, well, I guess that's more for us. And it's disgusting. It looks like rusty water with phlegm in it. Cause like the vodka curdle, if this is gross, it gets way worse. I'm sorry. It was like a diarrhea potion, more or less, uh, you know? Not, it wasn't, di it, no, it was a potion of diarrhea. It wasn't made out of diarrhea, but it gave you diarrhea as like a special skill. Um, and so we're drinking that, my little brother's drinking that, and I'm a giant and I've always been wildly overweight and above average height, so nothing, like, Drinking has never really gotten to me, and I'm like, drinking this, I see my brother, and he's like a little shit face, and I'm like, nice, dude, you're having a good time? He's like, I'm having a great time. He wanders off. My girlfriend, Chantel, comes by, and she's like, it's almost uh, midnight, it's like 11-ish, and she's like, do you want to go upstairs and bring in the new year, you know? And I was like, fuck, yes. I was not a virgin at this point. She, I had lost my virginity to her, you know, weeks ago, but I was super stoked about, like, I thought midnight... Like, you know, having sex at midnight on New Year's Eve was like, you know, like the whole bring in the new year with a bang. Like, that matters to you. Now I'm 31. I just go to sleep at 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve, pissed off at my wife for some reason. Uh, uh, not for some reason. We all know why. Uh, and uh, so, so we, uh, so I'm like, hell yeah, let's go up. And I'm like, want people to know that I'm going upstairs to have sex because I'm a grown up and I need to show off that I get laid, like grown ups do. And I, uh, Walk past my brother and I'm like, are you gonna be all right? I'm going upstairs with Chantel. I might not be down for a little while. Like, ex like I'm gonna last more than eight minutes <laughs> with foreplay and undressing. And I'm like, uh. he's like, yeah, I think I'll be fine. And he takes out a cigarette and lights a cigarette. I'm 16 years old. My brother is 13 and he's smoking a cigarette. I'm like, you smoke cigarettes? And he got, his response was, you don't? And I was like, fuck man, I was supposed to be the cool one. And now you're cooler than me. I'm afraid to smoke. I tried a cigarette once and I tried it in a pool so the smell wouldn't be on me. I like stripped down to my underwear, climbed into a pool, took like two puffs and I was like, I don't like this and like threw it out. Now I have like a, a, a pot cart. So now I'm cool. Uh, I got it for like, so I told the doctor it was for loss of appetite. And uh, he's like, What's, what ails you, son? I was like, I just can't, I'm not eating. You know, I'm worried. Malnutrition? <laughs> All right. They don't give a fuck here. My anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist, when he gave me my weed card, gave me a fist pound and was like, good on you, man. I was like, good on, man, you're a fucking doctor. You're awesome. I'm drooling. That's awesome. Uh, I'm so excited about this part of the story. So we go upstairs to make love. That's what 16-year-olds do, of course. And uh, we, uh, so we start hooking up. And uh, I realize at this point, I'm shit-faced. And uh, I know some of you guys might know the term whiskey dick. Like, oh, yeah, I can't get up. I have whiskey dick. But I had, like, alcoholic root beer float dick, which is an awful kind of whiskey dick. You can't get it to do anything, no matter, like... Try every trick you know, like the ball pull or the, uh, do you know this trick where you like hold your penis like this in your fingers and like wag it around at the base, like get some blood swinging into it, use like centrifugal force. You know, it's like you take a balloon and like, we like went around, it's like get the blood in the tip, it'll just get it going. You know, I was like, come on motherfucker, you're like toothpasting it out. I was like, come on, come on, come on. And I couldn't get it up and I'm like, so she's like, and I'm like, don't want to tell her. She's like, put on the condom, put on the condom. You know, and we like rip open the, we were so crazy with safe sex. We would like, after we had sex, she would make me run water in the condom to see if there were holes in it. 
which is an insane thing to have to do. Is like, as a 16-year-old boy, like, walk in, like, just mix cum and water in your parents' bathroom sink. You're like, ah, it's clean. What do I do with it now? I have, like, a fucking water balloon that could fertilize a field of women. And I just <laughs> spin it around, spin it around, spin it around. I, oh, the worst Gallagher ever. It just, like, smashes it. Sorry, sorry. I don't know why I said that. I have never t- said that ever before, but I think that's exciting to me. <laughs> <laughs> Put up your tarps, front row, splash zone, splash. Uh, so, uh, now, I don't know if you've ever seen a 16-year-old boy try to put a condom on a soft... If you have, keep it to yourself. <laughs> like, that maybe is not a question to ask a room full of grown-ups, but a 16-year-old boy trying to put a condom on a soft penis is the saddest sight, and I've seen every ASBCA commercial, so I know sad shit. There's no Sarah McLaughlin song playing in the background as... I try to, you know, yeah, yeah, anyone here have a dog and you're like bathing your dog and it jumps out of the bathtub and you try to get it back in the bathtub and it just squishes out of your hand or like slides around right next to the bathtub and you're like, get in the goddamn bathtub. That's me. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, focus, focus. I'm just trying to put my little soft penis into this condom that seems bigger and bigger as the situation goes on. I'm like, it's growing. I'm shrinking. I'll never have sex. And I'm freaking the fuck out. Now, you know you're a certain kind of shit-faced if you're a 16-year-old boy who can't get an erection for sex. Like, I would get an erection for the quadratic equation in math class, and I can't get it up for a nude girl lying there being like, so I'm like, oh, Oh yeah, I don't know, I've never, I, you probably, some of you maybe know this, but I am awesome at eating pussy. I really am, I'm fantastic at it. And I'm not, it's not a brag, like, I had to get good at it because I'm so bad at sex, you know what I mean? Like, so I had to get a girl off before I like went on top of her and dripped sweat into her face for four minutes while like <laughs> breathing really heavy. <laughs> yeah, you know, my wrists hurt. You know, I'm 300 pounds, like having sex hurts my wrists, okay? <laughs> Ask my wife. I'm always on the bottom, but it hurts her because she has to get so wide to straddle me. She's like, God damn it, my fucking back is killing me from fucking this monster that sleeps next to me every night. Yeah, that's why we only have sex once every three months. That's why. <laughs> uh, so, so I start going down, and I'm really fucking good at going down on her. And I learned, like, all, you know, I read Cosmo when I was, so I knew the deal. I did the fucking alphabet. I did the alphabet backwards. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like drawing it with your tongue. I did this one girl. I was like, yep. <laughs> Don't you stop telling this fucking story. Tell me you have a black chick's name. We're in. We're going. Uh, I'm already disgusting. I don't have to be racist. So I, uh, <laughs> I'm going down. I'm doing alphabet forwards, backwards, capital, lowercase. I start going cursive. That means no break for that little clitoris. I'm just jamming on it. I do capital letters in cursive. I can't draw an F in capital letters in my hand, but I could do it with my tongue because I was practicing all the time. And then the next thing I know, I just hear like, John, John. And I'm like, what? And she's like, did you just fall asleep? And I was like, oh no. She's like, you fell asleep going down on me. And I was like, I didn't. And then I like, she knew I was like into really, like really into cunnilingus. So I was like, I was trying something new. Cause I'm a man, so I lie instantly. I'm like, I was trying something new. And she's like, something new. And she's like, in her head, I could see her go like, press your nose into my labias and breathe heavy for a minute without moving. Oh yeah, it's like Zen or some shit. I don't fucking know. She's like, forget it. Get up here and have sex with me. No condom. And I was like, oh, 
Fuck yeah! The moment, like the second you have, all you want your whole life as a boy is to have sex. The second you have sex, all you want to do is have sex without a condom on. And then once you have that, then you want butt, and then after that, you want uh, everyone. But you know what I mean? Like after that, it's like you're chasing a dragon that's too weird. You're like, I need a girl to hit me in the face with a golf club while another girl's jerking me off into like someone else's sneakers. You know, like like you get like. But at the point, I just was so excited of unprotected sex that I'm like, fuck yes. And you know, sex with a condom, and this is the a reverse PSA, but it sucks. It's like trying to swim with sneakers. You know, it's like something feels weird, and I'm not moving as fast as I'd like. You know, and so I start. I'm, now, before I, I'm sorry. Before I said it was super, the saddest thing ever as a kid with a flaccid penis trying to put a condom on. Check that. Sadder is a kid with a flaccid penis trying to get it inside of another kid. You know, like, just trying... Now, have you ever been locked out of your apartment or your house, depending on how rich you are, uh, and been like, fuck, I don't have any keys, but I do have this Ziploc bag full of mashed potatoes. Maybe I can get it in the keyhole. And you're just like... Jam it in. You're just like pressing it near your keyhole, and you're like... All right, a part of it's going in. I don't know if it's reaching the mechanism that unlocks the door. Let me just keep pressing this mass of mashed potato. Oh, it's almost, I'm really going to unlock this in no time. And the door is crying, going, like, what are you trying to do to me? And you're like, shut the fuck up, door. This is all I have. Let me try this. Just mash, you know? I'm just, like, smushing my genitals near her genitals. And I'm pretending like we're having sex to just like, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of an actor. I'm an improviser. So I'm like, oh, right? And she's like, what? I'm just like mushing. Mostly I'm just slapping my balls against her taint. And I'm like, nothing's happening. So all of a sudden someone's like, John, your bro someone knocks the door open. He's like, John, your brother's locked himself in the bathroom. I think he needs your help. And I was like, oh, you f holy shit, I'm saved. I don't have to do any more of this embarrassing quote unquote sex. So I fucking like, I'll get him. I like put on my underwear and I run down the stairs and I like Steven Seagal my way. It has to be Steven Seagal because I'm fat. So it's like, I kicked the door open and my brother's just on the toilet and he had, you know, the diarrhea potion has taken effect and he's crying and there's vomit everywhere and he's shitting and he's like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, this is not your fault, man. Don't worry. Your big brother, your grown man is here. And I scoop him off the toilet and I wipe his fucking ass for him because I'm a big brother. And I wipe his ass like a man. And like a man wipes another man's ass like this. Headlock here, grab his head, yoke him off the toilet. Toilet paper, yoink, you're clean. Throw him in the shower, standing in the shower. It's like the crying game. He's like covering his dick and I'm like scrubbing him with the loofah or whatever the shit girls use on their bodies are. And I'm like, here, here's some, you know, St. Ives apricot scrub. This will work. Just like, oh, Pantene Pro-V, you know, like spray it. I'm like hosing him down. Call my mom. I'm like, Joanne, pick Justin up. He's had too much to drink. I'm a grown up. I got this. Put him in the car with my mom. And now this story goes into memento mode where I'm told about it the next day because I don't remember any of this. But apparently I put my brother in the car. I thought I said, mom, Take care of Justin. I'm going to be home at uh, 1230, just like we talked about. But really, she said, I went, her, here's me, and I turned around and walked into the backyard of the house. And the party was in. My mom saw that the people were inside partying. It's January, it's December 31st in New York. I just walk into the backyard of the party by myself. And everyone was like, you were outside for like 40 minutes talking to your mom. I was like, I think I talked to my mom for five minutes and sat in the backyard for 35. <laughs> 
rest of the night goes sort of uneventfully. Make out at uh, midnight. Don't even try to do anything else. Uh, get home. My best friend, Welfare, is sleeping over. We, like, go raid the fridge because he doesn't have food in his house because his parents are poor. So we're like, we're fucking shit-faced. We're 16. Like, oh, what do we got in the fridge? Oh, pickles. Sweet. Open the pickle jar. I eat, like, three pickles and then just drop the jar on the floor. Shatters. Pickle juice goes everywhere. Pickles are all over the floor. And I just, like, fuck it. We'll get it in the morning, man. Like, well, he's like, all right, yeah, yeah, we'll clean it up in the morning. We'll leave broken glass on the floor in a house where five people and a dog live. Let's go. Open up the fridge. I'm like, oh, shit, Outback Kookaburra wings. They're just like buffalo wings with less sauce, but better. So we're like, open the styrofoam case. We're eating buffalo wings, and we're putting the bones back in the fridge. And not back in the container. I'm just like tossing bones into the fridge. Just like standing in front of them. I'm a, like, I am a legit monster. I'm just like, ah, I mean, like that's like I did what a dog does when it's left unattended. It's like, oh, the dog got in the fridge and knocked the pickle jar over. It's like, no, our 16-year-old monster son downstairs. So me and Sanford go to sleep. He sleeps on the floor. We're not that cool yet. Later we would have started sleeping together, but uh, that's not part of the story. That's a whole nother story. Um, so I'm sleeping in the bed. My mom wakes up, uh, goes, rolls over to my father, and she's like, John. You need to check on them. I'm worried about, he was very drunk earlier and then I thought I heard a racket when they came home. My dad came home, looked in the kitchen, was like, oh, I'm gonna fucking murder them. Uh, just sees like a crime scene of like, like, you know, a fucking Fat Albert crime scene. It's just like, opens the door to my, he opens the door to my bedroom and just hits him the, the waft of puke and he's like, this is a problem. I'm sleeping in bed on my side and I have a perfect, this is a great venue to use this uh, description, but I have a perfect like, talk bubble of vomit sticking out of my mouth like right here on the bed is a blarp and I just keep them like laying right next to it like mm, I'm gonna sleep wonderfully tonight and my dad's like Jonathan get up you can choke on your puke and I like stand up and then Sanford wakes up and he's on the bed and he has a bib of vomit on his chest like he just got up and went blarp so his diarrhea potion for Justin but for 16 for my brother but for 16 year olds the potion had a different effect than it made you vomit or the pickles or the wing bones you know anything could have done it and he's like, Sanford, you puked on yourself too. And Sanford, because he's a man, instantly lies and says, no, Mr. Gabris, John puked on me in the middle of the night. <laughs> and my father, and he has a, like, like, I put a fucking stencil down and vomited in it and pulled it away like I was Banksy. And I was like, perfect. And my dad looks at me and he goes, you fucking pig. I'm a 16 year old boy. And my dad goes, you fucking pig. And he goes, get in the shower. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll take a shower. I'll, uh, I'll come talk to you. And he's like, no, both of you, get in the shower. And we're just like, what? And so we like, me and my, my best friend Sanford, we're like, just standing in the shower in our underwear. My dad's like spraying us. He's like, you're fucking disgusting. He's like cursing me out. We're just, and now we're in the fucking crying game. It's like, holy shit. We're just standing there and we're like, oh no. And he's like hosing us down and scrubbing us. And he's like, honestly, gotta get your shit together. I'm 16, he's telling me I gotta get my shit together. And then I realized at that moment, I was not a grown up at all. So that's my story, guys. Thank you very much.
it for this episode, folks. This is Primal Scream behind me now, and that was John Gabrus at the Risk Show in Los Angeles. He's at G-A-B-R-U-S dot com. On Thursday, April 25th, Risk is in New York at the Pit with A.J. Jacobs. That same night in Los Angeles, we're at Nerd Melt with Lauren Koch. In May, we are coming to Charleston, South Carolina. In June, we are coming to Washington, D.C. Always learn where Risk is going to be happening live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. You can find us at MaximumFun.org. We are listener-supported. Your support is absolutely essential to the continued creation of this show. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to make a one-time donation or become a member today. Make sure to converse with us, commune with us. On Facebook and Twitter, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. TheStoryStudio.org is where you can find our educational wing of our business. We teach all kinds of workshops, plus one-on-one coaching over Skype or in person, and corporate workshops, including our 18-part video lecture course, Storytelling for Business. It's both video lectures and workbook activities. You can take it in your own time. Find it at thestorystudio.org. Just press that little button that says, show me the videos. And if you would like to purchase our three Risk All-Star episodes, just go to iTunes and do a search for Risk All-Star. Three of our very best episodes ever, jam-packed with famous people and infamous stories. They're just $2.99 each, and you gotta get them at the iTunes store now. And with that, the only thing left to say, my friends, is folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC.